the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. I am Seth Leibson. Our phone number 602-508-0960-602-508960. That's your barrier to entry to join us uh, on air. I want to uh, welcome back David Dollar, associate producer who is uh, manning the uh, production studios today. Bill is uh, off today. He'll be back tomorrow. When higher education becomes a junkyard... At Stanford last week, a U.S. federal judge was prevented from speaking at the law school because a group of students shouted him down and so protested his speech that even one of the deans blamed the judge for bringing on the unrest by his very viewpoints and by his very presence. Last night at UC Davis, a publicly funded institution subject to the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, At Davis, this took place at a speech Charlie Kirk was giving there. Quote, they smashed windows, hurled eggs, used pepper spray, and blocked people from entering. Close quote. Let me give you a headline in the first paragraph of a story where a prominent liberal left speaker, Ibrahim X. Kendi, who literally supports anti-white discrimination in the law and has written so several times, was invited to speak at Pepperdine. Well, to help out, let me give you the headline and first two sentences of what the conservative student union did when he arrived on that campus. That's right. You will find nothing. Kendi's speech at Pepperdine is a hypothetical, but it would be true as it would be true of any liberal left professor on any campus in the United States. It would be pacific and as calm as the falling snow. That is Not the point, however. There should be no news attending a speech at a university campus, unless, of course, the speech is, in fact, attended by or encourages violence or the breaking of other laws. But that is not the news story about violence on our campuses, is it? There was violence by students, not by the conservative speakers, and there are encouragements to violence by students, not by the conservative speakers. And yet the news, along with the varied statements by school administrators, is that the speakers encouraged and incited the violence. How did they do that? By their very presence and dint of their viewpoint. This is the first time, though, in recorded history that I know of that violence has been found and is being found by mere silence and quiet thought by those who are alleged to be inciting violence. This is the world the Marxists have bequeathed to us. A thought, a mere thought, if it dissents from regime hierarchy and the dominant field of ideology, can be a crime. We now have thought crimes here, as violence is a crime— And in this Orwellian world, speech can constitute violence. We have traveled an awfully long way from Thomas Jefferson's dictum that the coercion of the laws can only touch the acts of the body, the actions of the body, and not the measurements and considerations of the mind. Seems the coercion now can touch the considerations 
of the mind. You are beginning to recognize this new world more and more, are you not? Speech is violence. Violence is mostly peaceful. Peacefully and patriotically marching is insurrection. Gender changing is gender affirming. Keeping hands off a body is having clinicians operate in your body. Wanting those hands off the body is putting hands on it. Color blindness is racism. Discrimination is anti-racism. Voter suppression means more voters voting. And build back better means higher gas prices for your car and food shortages for your babies and tampon shortages for women and menstruating men. And so, being a conservative on campus, stating policies that are debated every single day in every single state legislature, as well as in the halls of Congress in Washington, D.C., that kind of talk, that kind of speech, that kind of debate simply cannot exist on a college campus, not without censorship, shutdowns, or riots. There is a reason. Speakers like Dennis Prager and Heather MacDonald and Charles Murray require security details when they go to a college campus. No leftist ever does. It is, in short, a crime on the campus to be a conservative, just to be one. This is how the left is trying to own the entire coin of the realm of thought and politics in this country. And the realm of thought obviously begins with education. This has been going on for some time, and it started in California in the 1960s. In fact, Ronald Reagan was elected governor in California in 1966, in large part on this very issue, campus unrest and violence. In one letter Ronald Reagan wrote to a college president in California that year, he wrote the following. I discovered this recently. I thought you might like it. Ronald Reagan, 1966, college president. Dear Glenn, How far do we go in tolerating these people and this trash under the excuse of academic freedom and freedom of expression? Please understand that question isn't made in any tone of accusation. I mean myself, too, in that use of the term we. We wouldn't let a Leroy Jones in our living room. Leroy Jones was a radical and violent anti-Semitic activist prominent at the time. We wouldn't let a a Leroy Jones in our living room, and we wouldn't tolerate this kind of language in front of our families. Hasn't the time come to take on those neurotics in our faculty group and lay down some rules of conduct for the students comparable to what we'd expect in our own families? If we do, and the we this time means you'd have all the backing I could give you, I believe the people of California would take the state college system back into their hearts, close quote. It's interesting, no? Look at the radicals on our campuses today. Look at the rock throwers, the shouters, the screamers, those who refuse to listen, those who refuse to even tolerate a different point of view other than their own. Would you want them in your house or living room? And don't you love Reagan's use of calling them and their supporters among the faculty neurotics? It is a neuroses, meaning etymologically an abnormal condition and a derangement. Of course, we think the policies and the politics of the left are wrong, baleful, even anti-American. After all, Jesse Jackson and the Stanford folks told us decades ago that, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ had got to go. But we leave them undisturbed. We understand Thomas Jefferson's point in his first inaugural that those who disagree with us should be, in Thomas Jefferson's words, 
let to stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated, where reason is left free to combat it, close quote. The left does not abide by this. Their purpose is to shut us down and shut us up and out and without reason. They are not susceptible or interested in reason or reasoning. They are absolute academic and verbal tyrants. I would want normally there to say intellectual tyrants, but they act as rabble and the mob, not of anything or with anything fairly described as intellectual. And so goes and so is our education system just now. In a then-famous speech Ronald Reagan gave on campus unrest in 1966, he described the goings-on that looked eerily Stanford and UC Davis went through yesterday and last week and said, quote, how could this happen on the campus of a great university? It happens because those responsible abdicated their responsibilities, close quote. Reagan would go on to say, What in heaven's name does academic freedom have to do with rioting, with anarchy, with attempts to destroy the primary purpose of the university, which is to educate our young people? These charges must neither be swept away under the rug by a timid administration or by public apologists for the university. The citizens who pay the taxes that support the university also have a right to know that if the situation is as we see, those responsible will be fired and the university will be cleaned up and restored to its position as a major institution of learning and research. Close quote. You see two different ideas of the primary purpose of the university. To the founders and the supporters of the university, the primary purpose is to educate young people. To those that are there now, as the academics, as the administration, as the majority of students, it is to indoctrinate. Reagan pointed that out and won on that issue, but that was in a better and stronger and more serious time. That kind of thing is likely not to happen too much now, but it is a reminder to all of you who donate to your alma's mater to take a good close look at what is going on at the school you may have fond memories of. If you are interested in donating to educational schools or causes, make sure they are truly educational causes, and there are plenty of great elementary and secondary schools in urban and other areas that do tremendous work and would make better use of your money than a college or university. Meantime, pressure candidates for governor and your governors to do what Reagan did and what Ron DeSantis is doing, which is to take seriously their roles when appointing trustees and regents that oversee these universities that operate on your dime. Professor Peter Schramm once had a great description of the point of a university education. He said, We are led both as human beings and as free men to ask questions that are not simply instrumental to other questions or as solutions to problems, but questions that seem to be ends in themselves, questions that speak directly to us as human beings and citizens. These questions, when properly posed in the very best books ever produced in the history of the human race— excite the student's imagination, become part of the discipline and furniture of the mind. The study of these books and the fundamental experiences they were meant to articulate provide models of fine minds, noble action, wise precepts. Students get to know and live with the most extraordinary and unexampled people, grappling with the most wonderful human questions. 
Liberal education consists of education toward activities that are ends in themselves, activities that make life complete. It is an attempt to understand the ends or the nature of things. This is done quite naturally, for the questions are eternal and reflect on what is the best and most interesting things about the human condition. Reflecting on questions such as what is happiness, what is good, what is noble, what is base, what is man, always enlighten the student's own humanity. He is pointed higher, wanting to know the cause of things, the nature of the universe, of which he himself is a manifestation. He thereby is reminded of his freedom, of the potentiality of his human nature. Is any of this taking place at the colleges and universities you see making the news today when they engage in mob rule and rabble-rousing? None of this is what takes place at structures like UC Davis or Stanford or way too many other places. None of it, not even a semblance of it. They are battle stations, not schools with all the questions having become irrelevant because the faculty, along with most of the students, believe they already have and know the answers to all the questions that need be asked, answers that came about not from examination and thought, but from dictate and indoctrination. Leo Strauss once put it that liberal education is liberation from vulgarity. And the Greeks had a great word for vulgarity. They called it aparokalia. Lack of experience in things beautiful. Liberal education is supposed to supply us with experience in things beautiful. Today, liberal arts education has come to stand for a junkyard. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back. These goings-on at the college campuses have an interesting uh, welding to the issue we were talking about yesterday having to do with uh, our youth and their mental health. Glenn Reynolds, a law professor himself, writes in the New York Post that what happened at Stanford is not a one-off. Last year, Georgetown Law, another top five or top ten law school in the country, hosted a similar descent into madness when Ilya Shapiro, who was hired to direct the school's Constitution Center, posted a critical tweet about President Joe Biden's promise to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. The students not only protested, but demanded space to cry. Who wants a lawyer needs space to cry? Rather than telling them to grow up, the dean paid for catered food for the protesters. So Georgetown Law is as crazy as Stanford. That's bad, but what's worse, Professor Reynolds writes, <clears throat> is that the woke DEI approach to education is also making students crazy. Jonathan Haidt recently wrote a fascinating essay on why the mental health of college students has been in such steep decline for the past decade. We talked about this yesterday. He noted cognitive behavioral therapy used to treat depression teaches patients to stop ruminating over perceived slights and setbacks and engaging in black-and-white thinking or emotional reasoning. But the culture of DEI does exactly the opposite. It encourages students to dwell on slights, engage in literal black-and-white thinking, and prioritize their emotions. It's reverse CBT in his phrase. Instead of being taught to overcome traumatic experiences, negative thoughts, and emotional instability, students are encouraged to dwell on them and even to base their identities on them. When victimhood is a source of 
prestige, there's really no incentive to get any better, is there? And when students are told their weaknesses provide an excuse to bully others, you should expect more bullying and more weaknesses. This isn't good for the bullies or the bullied, and it isn't good for the institutions they inhabit. Students' worst and most juvenile behavior is indulged and rewarded with the predictable results of students growing increasingly juvenile and ill-behaved. This from institutions that charge top dollar to purportedly educate America's future leaders. Over the past decade, universities have spent a fortune on DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, though the inclusion part certainly hasn't been very visible, has it? And there is no evidence, in fact, zero evidence, it has made things better on campus for anyone except the DEI bureaucrats who cash these high six-figure paychecks for spouting this kind of nonsense that they spout. Insanity, we are told, consists of doing the same thing over and over again while expecting a different result. Maybe it's time to stop this cycle of craziness. It's a popular phrase to stop the cycle of violence. Perhaps it's time to stop the cycle of craziness, which in and of itself is a bad, but at its worst fuels the kind of violence we saw at places like UC Davis yesterday. Or maybe, maybe, right-wing critics of higher education establishments should stop criticizing and cheer this on. After all, those whom the gods would destroy, they first make crazy, and there's a lot of craziness going on. You sometimes look at these videos that are taken, whether at Stanford or UC Davis or any of these campuses, and you see these administrators stepping in, siding with the protesters, and you wonder who the real adults in the room are. You wonder if these administrators have any business being considered adults in the first place. They're not siding with the restoration of order. They're not siding with the restoration of true education. They're siding with the notion that a conservative's presence, before they even say word one, their very presence is an act of violence, and that the protesters who are throwing brickbats at them are not engaging in violence, in response, that they have been provoked into protest based on an unsafe environment that the conservative, by just being there, presents. This is an inversion of everything Western thought, and for that matter, Oriental or Asian or Eastern thought ever could have found or discovered. This goes far beyond Marxism. It goes really to thuggery, and the thuggery not of just academia, but the intellect. The idea of thought crimes here in America, particularly at a college campus or a law school, should be so anathema that anyone involved in supporting them should be expelled from that college forthwith. Instead, they will be rewarded, made heroes of, and get book contracts. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 past the hour brings us the great John Dombrowski. He is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. Great website. Great way to get in touch with him. And he has his own radio show heard here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. The Word on Wealth. Good afternoon, John. Happy hump day. Happy cloudy, rainy hump day. Yeah, we knew it was coming, right? You got your car washed Exactly right. Blame me. Blame yes. me for this. <laughs> Did we know some of this other stuff was coming? We now have Credit Suisse in the news, don't mm-hmm. we? Yeah, we do. Yeah. yeah, talk to me about that a little. Well, bit. Well, so uh, again, it's a similar scenario where we're seeing some issues potentially with liquidity, uh, but one of the things that the Swiss Swiss National Bank says it will provide Credit Suisse with the liquidity needs that they may have if it's necessary. So there is a backstop for this, and that kind of. Uh, help the stock market again uh, settle down a little bit because this morning, uh, based on news we heard last night after the stock market closed with Credit Suisse potentially uh, having some liquidity issues, uh, the markets opened up really, um, you know, in a negative position this morning and throughout the day getting more and more news about it. Uh, eventually, the markets did correct a little bit, but uh, the Dow was still down. Financial stocks were still lower, but the Nasdaq. Um, I was going to say Nasdaq actually, up, right? Yeah, it actually had green. a little, had a, a nice recovery, and it actually closed higher today, which was a, a nice, nice thing to see based on uh, the start of the day. Some of this news is affecting some of the guesswork about what the Fed is going to do. Isn't that right, too? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people out there, you know, stating that the Fed really, uh, if they are going to continue to have any type of credibility at all, yeah. that they're going to have to potentially still raise rates, but maybe not as you know severe as a half a percent, maybe a quarter percent. Uh, and then there are those out there saying, hey, based on what's happening right now, the Fed really needs to take a closer look at this and maybe not even raise rates at all. Um, and that's a possibility, but uh, it seems like the consensus is that a quarter percent raise may be the case, and with some type of a uh, softening approach moving forward, maybe taking a pause and uh, allowing the markets to work their way through whatever uh, these financial issues that we're facing at the moment. Draw the dots there for us, if you don't mind, John. You're very good mm-hmm. at this. The rate raise, if the Fed's raise the rates, yes. the implications for what places like, uh, well, the implications for what banks like Silicon or or others signal uh, are going through are affected in which direction? How does this affect what we're seeing happen with these banks that we're getting nervous about? Well, it makes uh, money tighter. Uh, It makes money harder to get. Uh, And with the uh, issue with the uh, Silicon Valley Bank and also Signature Bank and now possibly um, Credit Suisse, um, it's going to probably bring more regulatory uh, issues to the banking industry, and you know, I, I know that I heard, uh, um, I forget her name, uh, the senator uh, who Trump used to call Pocahontas. Oh, Warren, yeah, Elizabeth Warren. Warren yeah, she uh, was on CNBC today, and yeah. she uh, was basically stating stating that you know more regulation needs to come to these banks, uh, and I do believe that the um, Silicon Valley Bank, the uh, the people who are running the bank, obviously the officers that officers of that bank. Uh, made some decisions that probably shouldn't have been made and, and probably should have been looked at a little bit closer so that this wouldn't have happened. Uh, they they took on too much uh, long-term credit risk. Mm-hmm. And when rates were rising, uh, they were not making the necessary adjustments accordingly. Yeah. And so they got caught in these uh, with these longer-term um, uh, bonds that they had at, sh- at lower rates based on what was happening. Uh, and uh, so they got squeezed out. Uh, even... 
you know, in our firm, when, when we're making adjustments to our clients' portfolios, we're looking at what was happening with interest rates, and we were making adjustments to our bond portfolios. And, and it's a much smaller scale than, of course, the, the billions and billions of dollars that, that someone like a bank uh, like um, Silicon Valley Bank was managing. Uh, but the principles are still there. And just the the good management of of that uh, you know change in rates in such a, sh- a quick period of time would warrant um, some type of adjustments to a portfolio as as we've done. So there's going to be I think some investigation as to yeah. why this happened and why it wasn't uh, monitored closer by the um, California uh, branch of of uh, you know the regulatory yeah. branches in California yeah. yeah yeah exactly of the fed there so we'll see what happens but uh, there's other things you know virgin orbit paused yep. operations it's saying for a week furloughing nearly the entire staff as it, as it's seeking seeking funding mm-hmm. there's a variety of different things happening right now money is getting tighter this is what the fed wanted yeah uh, it's happening yeah so maybe the Fed might just decide and say, you know, based on what we're seeing at the moment, we're not going to raise yeah, rates take next a pass. week. Take I don't know. Yeah, we're going to find might. out we'll next find week. Out. Uh, you know what's interesting to me? Sure. The idea of the nickname Pocahontas uh-huh. had its full force of effect on you. You, you remembered the nickname, which is what he wanted people to know her by, right? Right. right. No, it, it, you got to admit, the guy certainly knows how to market. Yeah, he does. All he right. Does. Give us the Al McCoy, brother. You bet. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finn Ritzipic, an investment advisor, Grant King and Plenty Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC, not affiliated. Thank you, Nicely Seth. Nicely done, John. I'll, I'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Wednesdays, we are joined, delightfully joined, by Brett Johnson. He is a partner at the law firm of Snell & Wilmer. He is our constitutional election law expert. Snell & Wilmer is SWLaw.com, based here in Phoenix, offices around the country. Brett, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. You, You and I went to law school roughly maybe around the same era. I was thinking about what took place at Stanford University last week. Uh, We might combine what took place at the undergraduate school at UC Davis last night with Charlie Kirk's appearance. We think about what took place at Yale last year, uh, Yale Law School. Um, Boy, the the students really were made of stronger stuff when we were there, weren't they? I I remember all kinds of lectures, conservative people coming in, liberal people coming in, left-wing people coming in. Uh, it was it was a non-event. It was a non-news event. And it, 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 yeah, go yeah. ahead, go ahead. It was, it was a definitely non-news event. And and I remember when professors, you know, you would go home for the night with homework, yeah. and and they would say, "You're coming in tomorrow and arguing this position." Exactly right. And then and then you would show up that day. They'd give you two minutes on the position you prepared for, and then they'd say, "Switch." Yeah. Yeah. And you had to be able to articulate the other side of your argument just as if as if nothing happened. And and it was very interesting and people would chuckle and it was kind of funny and stuff. But but it, it really was important for a lawyer to be able to stand up and be able to make an argument in a very uh, professional manner and argue the position of their clients. And and I think that there is a movement right now, especially um, what happened with Yale and a lot of the federal judges who are th- uh, thinking twice about 
clerkships for some of these individuals are from some of these schools and and that that's going to be concerning to for uh, for for law students and where you go to law school to be honest with you it may it may and yeah. it may not i mean it, in a weird way it seems like and it's funny these are some of the most elite of law schools i could have mentioned georgetown as well you remember the ilya shapiro contract right. um about a year ago, maybe a little less. You know, these are Stanford, Yale, Georgetown, probably top five and ten law schools. I think probably each of them would be categorized probably top five law schools. And feeders, yes, feeders to becoming clerks for federal judges or the Supreme Court. Um, that's one of their, you know, that's one of their calling cards. Judges are going to stop if judges are going to stop taking these students as clerks. It may cost these schools their students. But then again, I just don't know if these schools care. When you have schools saying one side of an argument uh, is not even welcome here, it seems to me they don't care about legal education anymore either. And that's the case. And actually, it's also and it's kind of like, you know, going to a legal term, right? A fiduciary responsibility yeah. for some of these schools to their students who are, by the way, paying a ton of money mm-hmm. to go there. Um, and in the case of the Stanford, it was it was one of the deans that led the students yeah. in yeah. Um, and and caused the caused the, the, the um, basically disruption of uh, Judge Kyle Duncan's yeah. um, presentation to a to a group up there. And, and that is concerning in itself that an administrator now students themselves. And what I think a lot of these students fail to appreciate is, is not forget about the clerkships, et cetera. But in this day and age, and we've talked about it before in First Amendment context, if you, if you recall, is that everything is permanent on the Internet. That's right. And, and their ability to get jobs. Now, let's go back to what the judges and why some judges are saying, hey, I do not want to hire because yeah. these, these uh, students are only learning one area of thought, mm-hmm. of a philosophical or political thought. And they know the answer before the question is asked, seemingly too, right? That, yeah. That's exactly the, the case. Think, yeah. And then, and then, secondarily, is, is that the good judges? And I, and I externed for a, for a federal judge, and he would call us in, and just like that law professor is basically articulate the other side, play devil's advocate to us. And if you don't are not educated and listen and be able to understand that, you're not going to be able to perform your function as a lawyer. So that is what is seriously going to be concerning. Um, going forward. And, you know, we want our lawyers to be able to stand up and make arguments that kind of maybe might be offensive to the rest of us. But that argument is necessary in our uh, democratic process and our judicial philosophy of hearing different sides of an argument, especially when you're talking about the First Amendment or, quite honestly, any of the Bill of Rights, Um, which, again, uh, the Fourth Amendment, uh, search and seizure, and uh, the Fifth Amendment, right to a jury, and the Sixth Amendment, uh, or Fifth Amendment, right to due process, and the Sixth Amendment, right to a jury. Those are all things that we want to be able to articulate and be able to have good discussions as to where we are going as a judicial system. And if the lawyers are only being trained in one thought area, it's going it's going to be uh, a concern for the rest of us. You know, not only one thought area, and I can't speak, you probably could, but I can't speak for the rest of the federal judiciary, but one thought area that is completely opposed to the majority of the current makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court. These are students that are being educated to not be able to appeal in, a, in, an, in an argument or understanding of the philosophy that right now is dominant on the U.S. Supreme Court and probably evenly split amongst the circuits. I don't know. 
And I think that you're right there, especially in regard to constitutional yeah. and statutory right. interpretation and right. how it's read. And, and what I, you know, we, we, we talk about Justice Jackson, one of my favorites, obviously one of your favorites, but uh, Thurgood Marshall, yep. Justice Thurgood Marshall, right. it always believed in, in a basically good dialogue that was for the betterment of the system. He was not for civil disobedience, for example. He was like, if you have an argument, you go into court and you try to plead your case accordingly. Mm-hmm. And he went into some very, very difficult courts arguing a position that at the time would, would just was completely contrary, but he did so basically with respect to the judiciary and respect to uh, the rule of law. And he prevailed on some major, major cases and obviously became a justice of the Supreme Court. So when you're, when you're looking at from either the right or the left, there are, are good examples of diversity of thought where you can have a good political debate. So I think that this is going to, and I think that the, one of the deans uh, and the president of Stanford for sure appreciated the blowback from what happened because of the apology letter that they had to send. Now, yeah. of course, what the students did in response was paper the dean's office with uh, um, a different, you know, all over the board about freedom of speech, yeah. etc. Um, but I, I, I think that this is eventually going to come to a head, and I think that the judiciary indirectly are, are stepping in on both sides, by the way. They, they want to have good independent thought. I would hope donors would step in. I would hope boards of uh, trustees would step in. And I would hope when it comes to public schools, and it turns out this would be the case at an undergrad, not so much of a law school, places like UC Davis, uh, people would sue based on uh, First Amendment grounds. I I would hope that that message could still be sent. Oh, um, absolutely. And, you know, it's when you're trying to remove um, basically the First Amendment from campuses, I mean, it reminds me again of of, uh, Yale, going back to Yale, of of trying to keep the military off campus to recruit. And and, and if the the actual perspective should be is we want our thought leaders to be in the military, to be in the government, to be in the judiciary, so they can can steer the country in the right direction from from maybe a different perspective. But to do so by rejecting even those opportunities for students, it's, it's a very short-sighted perspective and, in my opinion, possibly a, a threat to the First Amendment. I now, again, so. the conservatives sometimes do it on the other side, too. You know, they, when, they, when uh, you, you see different political events and people are getting shouted down versus allowing somebody to speak their mind and then having a good cordial debate, it, it does happen on both sides. Um, but at, at some point, somebody needs to be the adult in the room. Yeah, we have too many uh, children in adult bodies, don't we, Brett? Exactly. <laughs> Brett Johnson from the Snell & Wilmer Law Firm. Thank you, sir. Godspeed. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. A lot of you have been hearing me talk about why refi for some time now, and if you still have questions about what it could mean for you to invest with them, they would love it if you would contact them at 888-YREFI-34. 888-Y-REFI-34, and they can put you in touch with any number of their many satisfied clients and customers who have been unhappily investing with them at great result. They'd like me to ask you how your IRA is doing, and if you'd like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or Joe Biden's economy, you can invest with Y-REFI through an IRA and other qualified funds, and you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax-deferred. That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA, and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com. This uh, great story from Breitbart. 
uh, John Nolte. Uh, Greta Thunberg was forced to delete a tweet predicting the world could no longer be saved in 2023. So why did she delete this tweet? Because we're already a quarter of the way through 2023. And if the world can no longer be saved, it's if it's too late to reverse climate change, Greta and her fascist agenda are no longer relevant. After all, if it's too late to save the world, we might as well party on, right? Here's what happened. In June of 2018, the high school dropout tweeted a quote from an article predicting, quote, climate change will wipe out all of humanity unless we stop using fossil fuel over the next five years, close quote. In other words, the point of no return was this year. In other words, nothing can be done if we do not stop using fossil fuels by this year. Well, if nothing can be done, that means the entire environmental movement might as well pack up and go home. What's the use of doing anything if it's too late? If we're doomed, Greta might as well get off the stage and live the life she would have without all the artificial establishment hype around her, and that life would be behind a convenience store cash register, probably. By my count, this is the 54th prediction these environmentalists have had to take back. John Nolte writes, throughout my misspent life, various politicians, experts, and scientists have made 54 dire predictions about the environment, and not one of them, not one, has come true. The environmental movement is zero to 54. Suppose a scientist knocked on your door and warned that a meteor would hit and destroy your house within the next six months. What would you do? Well, you'd move out, of course. But let's say the meteor didn't hit, and then six months later, the same scientist knocked on the door of your new house and warned of another meteor. What would you do? Would you move out or laugh in his face? Now try to imagine your reaction if this happened 54 times. I give you today's environmental movement. I'm Seth Leibson. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.